Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Austin Whitman, CEO of Climate Neutral and a thought leader well-versed in the world of corporate carbon responsibility. Having served as Vice President of Climate Change Capital and Vice President of MJ Bradley & Associates, two leaders in climate-focused investing and asset management, in 2019, Austin started Climate Neutral, a non-profit aiming to accelerate the decarbonisation of global emissions through their achievable certification framework. By using this framework to certify brands who measure their carbon footprint, offset it with verified offsets, and create future reduction strategies, Climate Neutral aims to turn consumer purchases into funding for climate solutions and to empower brands and consumers to take voluntary action against climate change. This was an eye-opening conversation for me in which Austin really lifted the lid on how we might practically and proactively move towards a net zero carbon world. And I hope you find this conversation as useful and inspiring as I did. So Austin, thank you very much for coming onto the show and for speaking with me today. Well, thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with a question that I always open the conversation with, and that is, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? That's a big question. (laughs) I think the global human psyche is reeling from the last year and the realization that we can't win all battles as humans and that because of that, we're going to have to reassess how we approach certain things in life and planning and values and communities. I don't think anybody expected COVID to spiral in the way that it did. I remember personally being with some friends the weekend before lockdown last year, and we were all sort of thinking, oh, I think this gets gets considerably worse before it gets better. Mm. I think humanity might have thought that, but not to the degree that we've seen it. And I think that that's got lasting consequences. It really has made its way into human psyche. And the invitation that you've given me here is now to then bridge over from from COVID into climate change. And Mm. because that's sort of what we think about all day. And the big surprise that we had last year was coming into the first few weeks of the pandemic, I just, you know, I'd spent the last 12 months trying to launch our organization and it looked like we were on the brink of passing a major milestone, which was getting 125 or so companies on board with our certification. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe all that work you know, <laughs> is, is about to go out the door because we're now going to be facing a massive disruption. But the opposite happened, actually. More, more companies signed up. And that was, to me, a sign that a lot of people were 
taking renewed interest or, or new interest in assessing the impact of, of this other threat, which is climate change. And that was in a way forced by this major shock to the human psyche. So, you know, that's kind of the perspective that we've had from operating in the last 14 months or so. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think so many people were very quick to raise concerns about what this would mean in terms of our care for the environment, being able to afford in some cases to purchase items, products, services that are more sustainable because sometimes there is a higher price point attached to them. And yet in the research that I've also done for the for the new book, it seems that this is really crystallized for many people and deepened their commitment to a more sustainable, values-led, ethics-based way of living. I wonder if if you're seeing that also across different spheres. I think so. I think the uh, there, there are a couple trends that we're seeing that are notable. One is among professionals, working professionals, and the fact that a lot of people are leaving their jobs or looking for ways to pivot their jobs over into something that's more focused on climate change. That's something that we did not see in the first corporate sustainability wave, which it was about 15 years ago, mm. but it's happening in a very distinct way now. I don't know how to explain it, but certainly the new breed of networking tools and mobilization tools, whether it's Slack or social media, is providing a way for people to connect in ways like never before on new ideas and collaboration and, and those kinds of things. So I think, number one, working professionals, you know, their behavior is, is very, very significant. Number two, in the consumer level, consumers are at least reporting on surveys that they're more tuned into sustainability and climate than ever before. And the data is increasingly convincing that people want to connect their values with their purchasing behavior. Mm -hmm. And we've seen data like this in the past, but it seems even more convincing whether you're polling on general attitudes toward climate change or more specifically polling on the attitudes that people have when it comes to wanting to make sure that their purchases are aligned with their values. And then I think the other thing that we're seeing is within the sustainability profession, just a higher degree of attention and and energy being put to problems that companies really need to solve. And, you know, the amount of collaboration even among computing companies uh, is mm. really, really significant. I'll add another one, which is the entrepreneurial universe. So we, we talk to companies all the time that are just getting off the ground. And I think the startup community is now really taking seriously the need to build companies from the ground up that have sustainability as a core value. It's interesting to see that this trend seems to be touching all sizes of businesses, but in particular, I'm seeing it a lot among the smaller ones. And so let's talk a bit about your amazing business. So you're the founder of Climate Neutral, which is a non-profit company that was established in 2018 that aims to inspire brands and consumers to take voluntary action against climate change. From a personal perspective, what inspired you to set up this business? So I was not alone in setting up the organization. And then the story really relates to kind of conversations that I began having in 2018 with one of the co-founders of the organization who had started his own company and gone and observed the global impacts of that business around about 2017, 2018, and felt like there was more that he and his company could do to minimize that impact. And we started talking midway through 2018. Um, I've spent the last 
20 years of my career working on climate and clean energy and frankly had sort of turned my professional work over to things more related to policy and finance. And when I started talking to Peter in 2018, it got me interested in a new way in the power of consumers to mobilize against climate change in a way that wasn't happening or isn't happening. You know, the genesis for for me personally was really just this feeling that of all of the potentially very strong or, you know, big levers that we need to be pushing on climate change, that one in particular was vastly under-exercised or underused, and that was the power of consumers. And, you know, consumers, of course, drive what businesses do and how they make decisions. And so there's a very natural connection point between that lever and the opportunity to get companies to do more on climate. And so the organization was officially launched in early 2019, and we've got about 350 companies now that we're working on. That's so exciting. And actually, because I read already, I think it was last year, pre-pandemic, it was a study that came out by IBM and the National Retail Federation, Mm -hmm. which revealed that nearly 70% of consumers in the US and Canada said it was important that brands be sustainable and eco-friendly. And obviously, as someone who buys things as a consumer, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with friends about how complicated and tricky it is to weigh up all of the different factors that are involved in making purchases that align with my values of sustainability and regeneration, etc. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've been described by Business Insider as the man trying to make corporate sustainability labels as common as the USDA organic sticker on milk cartons, which sounds fantastic. How are you helping consumers make more informed decisions? Yeah, so one point on that IBM study that you just mentioned that I thought was particularly interesting was the fact that the trend that you point out held up across age demographics, Mm. right? And so in addition to being significant in the overall magnitude of how many consumers actually care, it was also cross-cutting from age 18 to age 60, concentrated maybe in the age group of sort of 22 to 55. But Mm. that basically means that it's not just people who are in college up to, you know, their early 30s, you know, a, a younger demographic, but it's really a wide demographic, essentially anybody who's spending any significant amount of money. And companies really need to take notice of that because it's where the, the market is shifting. I think one of the things that we're trying to get everybody to realize is that what somebody says on a survey like that doesn't tell you exactly how much time they're willing to spend or invest in making an evaluation of the impacts of their purchases. Mm. And... We believe that only a very small percentage of of individual consumers has the time to read footnotes and detailed technical analyses and understand, even understand numbers in a way that would support any sort of rating scheme that's quantitative or nuanced. Not that people aren't sort of mentally capable of understanding nuance, (laughs) but just people are busy. And, you know, you think about an average trip to the grocery store How many products are in your cart by the end of that grocery store run, right? Mm. And if you had to look at each one of those, you know, it would take you hours to go through the store. So consumers really need a simple and quick way of assessing purchases. You know, when, when something is in your cart on an online shopping store or potentially going into your cart, you know, you want to be able to say quickly, okay, should I buy this one or that one? 
And so that's been sort of the philosophy behind the label. And we've also, on the other end of it, done similar things to simplify the process for companies themselves, because the same holds true for for the people who need to take their companies through the certification process. They're all busy and Mm. they have day-to-day priorities that involve operating the business, handling customers, designing products, those kinds of things. So we've really tried to simplify the framework on both sides to make it easier for consumers to respond to the certification and also to make it easier for companies to get it. Mm. And so what are some of the criteria that Climate Neutral uses to assess the carbon impact of a given organisation? Well, we look at a commonly accepted greenhouse gas accounting framework called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. We use that to break down organisations into 10 basic categories of emissions, ranging from of course, the energy used to heat and power your offices, all the way up through more significant contributors like the raw materials in a company's supply chain if they make physical goods or the flights or car trips that they take in a normal non-pandemic year. And so we tally all these things up. And depending on whether a company is very, very large or more medium-sized, we have different approaches for how we turn these types of activities into carbon emissions. But the end result is a footprint that's comprehensive for that company, for all the emissions that are created when the company is making and delivering a product or a service to its end customer. And so what are some of the things that you that you look to? Because I'm thinking here, you know, a lot of the people listening, some will be business leaders, some will be involved in larger organisations, others will be freelance. Um, what are some of the things that we might look towards to start to assess our impact within the businesses that we work? Yeah, so it, it does depend on the size of the business and the, and the type of industry that, that somebody is involved with. But the more common significant contributors to carbon emissions relate to the products and services that a company needs to consume in order to deliver its own products and services to end customers. Mm -hmm. And just to give two examples, uh, one of the brands that we work with is a company called Kickstarter, which runs a kind of a crowdfunding platform. And most of their carbon emissions are coming from data centers, Mm. their technology firm. And then they've got some corporate operations, of course, and people who commute to work and um, energy to to power their office. But for the most part, it's, you know, it's electrons, right? That's the source of their carbon emissions. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we'll take our largest brand, which is an outdoor retailer called REI. And they have about a thousand companies that they work with who manufacture products and sell them through their stores. And then they have their own label for products that they sell in their stores as well. They have the stores themselves, and then they have a business in in travel. And (laughs) so there's a whole wide range of things that happen in the course of operating their business that contribute to carbon emissions. And so for them, it's, it's much more about the physical manufacturing and transport of goods from a factory to a warehouse to a customer. Mm. And so then thinking about carbon offsetting, because people talk about it quite a bit, and you've got companies Mm. who say that they're carbon neutral, and then others like the beer brand BrewDog, Mm -hmm. who are actually carbon negative and sequester more carbon than they put out. Mm -hmm. When it comes to talking about carbon offsetting, can you tell us a little bit about how it can work? What are some of the practices that are used? Um, and which are the ones that you feel have the most potential for positive long-term impact? Yeah, it's a good and important topic for discussion. Our general belief is that 
carbon offsetting, carbon credits are an absolutely critical part of dealing with climate change. And, you know, it's important to stress that the amount of investment currently flowing into the types of things that are needed around the world to reduce our carbon emissions are just a fraction of what's what's necessary. You know, it's important to have a long-term view or target of, of carbon reductions, maybe out 20 or 30 years, but every company out there needs to be taking immediate steps to deal with their carbon emissions. And when we certify a company, we're always looking at the last year's emissions. So those emissions have already happened. And what we get companies to do is essentially to invest an equivalent amount to clean up that last year's emissions while looking at Mm. future reduction opportunities. So you clean up those last year's emissions by supporting carbon reducing projects that could come from renewable energy, a wind farm in Indonesia, for example, or they could come from what's known as afforestation, which is planting trees, Mm. Um, or they could come from putting up electric vehicle charging stations or capping a landfill to reduce methane emissions or destroying industrial gases. There are really dozens and dozens of different types of projects that can contribute to capturing or avoiding carbon emissions. So what we have companies do is invest in projects to purchase credits that are equivalent to their annual footprint and then think about ways to reduce their emissions naturally from within their supply chains. Mm. Sounds very comprehensive. We try to make it so, and there's always room for improvement. And I think one of the big big questions that people have about carbon offsetting is, is this a good idea? I kind of break the debate into two different parts. One is, should companies use carbon credits? Is it a sort of mm. moral and technically good thing to do? And then the other is, are carbon credits effective? You know, to the first question, as you might guess, are view is absolutely yes. Every company should be investing immediately in these types of projects. And to the second question, the answer is, well, it depends. You know, are, are they effective? Mm-hmm. It, it depends on the kinds of projects that you're, that you're looking at. And there's certainly research on projects that haven't delivered the, the promised benefits. There's research on projects that have delivered the promised benefits. And then there's research on certain projects where the jury's still out. So we've tried to build a set of carbon credit requirements for eligible carbon credits that weeds out projects that are higher risk and less likely to deliver the benefits that are promised, while at the same time supporting a range of types of technologies and not narrowing it down to just one or two types because the sources of carbon emissions around the world are really varied and we think that the voluntary market needs to support decarbonization in a whole range of different instances. Mm. I think actually even just thinking about that in ways in which companies either enact change or purport to enact change, a lot of them claim to be making big transformations to their business practices. And of course, many of these companies turn out to be engaging in little more than greenwashing. How might we help combat this? Do you think people are getting wiser to what greenwashing looks like and then calling out faking where they find it? I think people are getting wiser by knowing that companies can fall into this pattern. Mm. And, you know, just the fact that the term has been invented and more and more people are skeptical or wary of it is a good thing. I don't know that people necessarily have a good way of evaluating 
whether one company's action is greenwashing or not. And to be fair, I think that like anything, it can be subjective and in the eye of the beholder. You know, there are companies out there, let's take a company like BrewDog, which is claiming to be carbon negative. Mm. Climate positive and carbon negative basically mean the same thing. The the implication is that the company is providing more benefit to the climate than than the damage that it's causing. Mm. And... It's a big claim. Uh, we've sort of stayed away from that type of designation with our certification because there's still uncertainty in any type of exercise that assesses what the damage is that you're causing. And so to claim that you have 100% certainty on that and enough certainty to know that you're actually doing something that's positive for the world is is maybe a difficult position to defend. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, th- I think that, that, that it's important for people to, to find simple ways to try to evaluate this, one of which is just to say, is a company actually investing money today or is this just something that they're saying they're going to do over the next 20 or 30 years? Mm. So I guess with people becoming increasingly concerned and vocal about the climate breakdown, with the stats that we've described and also more generally in in the media and in the public domain, obviously it's no wonder that we're seeing organisations like yours attempt to address these really complex issues by offering certifications or approaches that are designed to help consumers and businesses make more sustainable and informed choices. Given the competitors in this space, what is it that you think is different about the climate neutral label to the other organisations and labels that might be out there? There are a couple of things. One is that we are we're an independent nonprofit, which means that we're set up specifically with the goal of providing a accessible, credible, trusted label to consumers. And mm. we don't have any sort of business tied to selling carbon credits or consulting services. Mm. And so the decisions that we make about how we set up the certification and how we procure credits are, are based on what we and our external advisors think are the best way to run a trusted consumer-facing carbon label, Mm. full stop, right? There's sort of no other reason why we're doing this. In terms of the standards themselves, one thing that we've seen is a tendency to want to create lots of different versions of certifications to suit individual companies' preferences. Mm. And a classic example of this is where a company will certify just one of its 100 product lines and get points for certifying or being carbon neutral for that product. And honestly, to an average consumer, it may be difficult to even distinguish that it was one product, not the entire company that took steps. Another way that we see companies cutting corners sometimes is to only count a small fraction of their total footprint. So only to count their direct emissions from an office building, for example, and, and to exclude emissions from the entire supply chain that they depend on. So We require comprehensive measurement, which includes the value chain, and we require immediate action and investment, and then we require near-term reduction plans. And each year we review the standards to make sure that they're keeping pace with the best available thinking on carbon neutrality, Mm. aligning with international standards, but also holding to this idea that if we don't make it accessible and approachable, we'll never get enough companies on board to ever have impact at scale. 
Talking about that then, one of the concerns that crops up around board tables behind closed doors is around the impact that regulations might have on costs and productivity and the threats that it could pose to, I don't know, our ridiculous idea of infinite growth, which clearly isn't feasible on a finite planet. How do you begin to persuade stakeholders to charter a different path forward? I suppose it depends on who those are. I mean, I think at least in international discussions, the moneyed powers are firmly convinced that climate change is an issue. And if you don't believe it, you know, look at the reports from the insurance industry, which is on the front lines of at least the financial risk and, you know, estimating $25 trillion of potential damage by 2050 if we don't get our heads around this problem. And that's with a T, right? That's a, that's a pretty big number. I think that that has trickled over into financial institutions who've been pressured by shareholders and their own investors to take account of the ways that they're supporting a high carbon global economy and shift capital over into more low carbon assets and low carbon ways of doing business. I guess, you know, you've got to talk in economic terms is probably the clearest way, I would say. And for the companies that we work with, mm -hmm. it it does get back to what we opened up this conversation with, which is talking about what consumers think and feel. And, you know, so many times we're talking to a corporate CEO who says, show me that consumers care about this and we'll do it. And it's really no secret. That's sort of what business is based on, that companies mm -hmm. make products that they think consumers will buy. So the power of the consumer is really something that, again, needs to be tapped strongly. And I think that does make the business case. As far as you know, the broader set of stakeholders out there, policymakers and financial institutions and a whole range of other actors, everybody's got their own sort of mission in life. And I'm not sure I have the magic formula for convincing people. I do think that when, if we can get more and more companies on board with the idea that every company out there should measure and take account for and take responsibility for their carbon emissions, then it becomes a no-brainer conclusion that the companies are ready for there to be a meaningful price, a meaningful policy around carbon. So one of our longer-term visions is that we assemble a big enough coalition of companies that we can say, hey, look, you know, these companies are already taking this on themselves. Mm. And so what are some of the success stories that you're already seeing? Because your, your ranks have fallen to great numbers, which is very encouraging to see. Yeah, I mean, some of the more fun things that we've seen have been feedback from companies that the certification process itself really added value to their enterprise, which I love to hear, right? Having been a sort of a former <laughs> business consultant and you know, worked in the private sector most of my career, when we as a four-person nonprofit can add value to, you know, a multi-billion dollar company, that feels like a pretty good thing. Mm. And and that's just because of the the simple questions that we're outlining in the certification process and the process that it forced companies to go through to become certified. We also have seen a lot of amazing collaboration among the brands that we're working with. We're seeing a really healthy community forum. We've got a Slack channel for committed and certified brands. It's got about 450 members in it who are trading ideas, and we're hoping to make more of that. Rather than kind of being consultants to tell companies what to do, just to be connectors and mm. to have companies tell each other what to do or make mm. suggestions to each other. So I think that's that's pretty exciting. On the carbon credit side of things, we are hearing that our standards are increasingly influential in the purchases in the voluntary market, that more and more companies who are getting certified by us are going to providers and saying, hey, we need your carbon credits to look like XYZ. And mm. 
that means that over time we'll have more and more ability to shape demand and shift it toward higher quality over mm. time. So those are some things. And, you know, every day there's something that comes up that makes me feel like, hey, what we're doing is pretty cool. Of course, you know, those are outnumbered greatly by the number of things that I think, oh, man, if, if we only we could do that better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it does sound as though there is a real shift in in collaboration happening. And I think one of the things I've noticed, especially with organizations like B Corp, for instance, in recent years, is that people are becoming more literate about what it means to take responsibility for their impact in all manner of domains. I wonder actually if if you guys have considered reaching out to B Corp or doing work with them, because they're already very widely established across all variety of domains, and this might be a natural fit. <laughs> yeah, I was on a panel not long ago with their CEO and another organization that works in this area is 1% for the planet. Um, mm. And, you know, both of them have incredible bases of companies that they work with and great frameworks and demonstrated success of their certifications. So we've currently got some collaboration going with both of them. With respect to B Corp, we, we do work indirectly, you know, with some of the technology tools that we've built uh, with mm. their net zero initiative companies, so companies that are B Corp certified, who are also looking to embed climate responsibility uh, more prominently into their sustainability work. Mm. So I was reading recently, to go down a slightly different route, a rather unexpected and uplifting report, which came out, I think it was back in 2020, it was by the International Energy Agency titled World Energy Outlook 2020. And it outlined predictions that they had for solar output in the year 2040. And they estimated it now to be 43% more than they'd previously anticipated as a figure back in 2018, partly due to new analysis that they'd found showing solar power to have lowered in price by 20 to 50% in recent years. And so looking at that and some of the global emissions that they suggest have effectively peaked. I'm curious to ask, in terms of how we move forward to stabilise the climate and achieve net zero emissions, what kind of role do you see companies such as Climate Neutral playing in these efforts as opposed to or compared to, for instance, changes in policy? Do you see these things potentially working together? Definitely together. The role that we can play is to accelerate investment in the kinds of infrastructure that's needed for that type of transformation. You don't get to 43% solar penetration without massive build-out of infrastructure, mm. both transmission lines as well as solar, as well as all the different systems that are required, technology systems required to interconnect those systems into the grid. It's still, I think, a vast open sea of opportunity for voluntary carbon market to, to find meaningful ways to drive finance that's based on carbon to facilitate this rollout, right? And in the past, we've seen that cost decline that you referenced there was only the result of just large support in the form of both state and federal tax credits and renewable energy credits for the build out of things like solar and wind. And that's a good thing, right? You know, we certainly have a long history, decades and decades of subsidizing fossil fuel production to stabilize you know, national economies and facilitate global trade. And I wouldn't argue that that has been bad for humanity, except for the tremendously devastating climate consequences. So mm -hmm. it's okay. People are generally very uncomfortable when you know there's sort of a evidence of a government subsidy or government supporting the growth of an industry. But no, I mean, that's how economies develop. And that's how technologies 
scale. So it's great that we've gotten to the point where we are right now with renewable energy, but we are still just at the very, very early stages of a broad scale rollout of it and the broad scale rollout that's going to be needed to get to 2030 and 2050 climate targets. Mm. I think in the meantime, as governments try to shift their spending policy and think about their own roles in helping infrastructure develop, we can continue to support through the voluntary carbon markets, the types of projects that may not happen or would not happen otherwise But because we're able to drive finance on the basis that a project is going to reduce carbon emissions, a project then becomes economically viable and then it gets built. And then you're one step closer to that level that you cited. And so when you say voluntary carbon market, can you just Mm -hmm. define what you mean when you say this? Yeah, I know. It's hard to have. I have a hard time (laughs) having this conversation without, you know, bringing too many concepts that may be not familiar um, into the conversation. But, uh, yeah, they're two fundamental types of carbon markets. There's compliance markets, which are markets that are set up by government policy of some sort, whether it's a state or regional collaboration among states or a national or uh, international market. So basically, uh, if there's a law or a policy that sets up a need for carbon, (laughs) I'm trying as as much as possible to sort of use non-jargony language, but a policy that sets up a need for carbon reduction, Mm -hmm. then the market that would result would be a compliance market. And on the flip side, there are voluntary markets, which are made up of individuals purchasing carbon offsets. Maybe somebody has a monthly subscription to a carbon offsetting service and the credits that they're purchasing are typically voluntary market credits because that Mm. individual is voluntarily offsetting their carbons. And so are companies, right? And so the voluntary market is made up of credits that are developed and provided into this set of buyers who are choosing to do something that's not required of them by government. And there's, you know, there's some crossover in between these two types of markets, but typically people think of them as somewhat separate. Mm. Thanks. That's super clear. And actually, it's really useful to understand some of these terms just so that we can become more aware of what it means when you're reading a paper or you're reading some research. Um, So that's super useful. Thank you. So I'd like to ask then, What vision of the future are you holding in this moment, given what we've experienced in the last 18 months and what we hope to achieve when we're moving out of the current situation? I forget the kind of word for the person that I am, but, you know, sort of pessimistic (laughs) optimist or something like that, which is to say that I, having watched the run-up of enthusiasm and excitement in kind of dealing with climate about 15 years ago, the period from maybe 2004 or five until the period 2010. It was the dawn of the European emissions trading scheme. It was a moment, a period of very significant, what appeared to be progress within international climate negotiations. It was a period of unprecedented attention to legislation in the U.S. around climate change and a period of unprecedented corporate action on sustainability, all of which led absolutely nowhere. Mm. Now, I mean, that's maybe a, maybe a, a kind of a bleak assessment. But if, if you look at just one metric, one indicator, which is where have global carbon emissions gone since 2005, it's upward. It's 33% upward. Mm. And that's not the right direction. And we're looking at annual emission increases 2 or 3% per year, and the downward trajectory needs to be 7 to 8%. And, you know, I don't know how you 
shift an upward trend downward like that. I really don't. And I don't think that anybody is taking the problem as seriously as they say they need to. So, you know, on the flip side, I think that we're seeing things that have never happened before come out every day where the U.S. has its own new climate commitment. China is now making its own commitments. And so there is talk of getting to net zero by 2050 Mm -hmm. in a way that you know, if we had seen it in 2005 at this level of commitment, we may be actually in a very different space. So I'm pessimistic in the sense that it feels like a trend that's going to be almost impossible to reverse, but optimistic in the sense that we are in the best shape we've ever been in as a globe to take on this problem. And my hope is that we'll continue to feel more optimism and people will start to really see that the economic picture is way, way, way better if we get our arms around the climate Mm -hmm. challenge. Yeah. It's quite sobering to hear that. And I think there is a point at which, you know, we see this throughout history, at which when we're at the very brink, sometimes that's what we need to be able to really turn the ship around. The question is whether you hit the iceberg first and how many people fall overboard before the ship is able to turn. In this instance, I'm thinking more about species, but yeah, not not a great metaphor. So thinking about then something slightly different before we before we close, if you were to recommend maybe a book or a podcast that has most captivated your imagination recently. What might that be and why? I really enjoyed its fiction. I really enjoyed a book called The Overstory. Hmm. And um, and then there was actually a piece called The Understory written by a completely different author, but both of which looked at the interconnectedness of forests and ecosystems and a lot of emerging research showing the relationships between plants in a way that we've only ever thought animals have relationships. So, you know, I guess I get immersed and sort of drown in all of the technical analysis every day. And there's no shortage of climate doom, you know, nonfiction out there analysis, you know, more and more writing about the world in in kind of a a climate challenged environment. Mm -hmm. And that, (laughs) you know, I think it's all important to digest. And, you know, there's loads and loads of climate lists out there. But my feeling on uh, those two pieces that I mentioned is that they really start to get you thinking in a more profound way about, you know, life on earth and in these sort of scientifically mystical ways, but with the very human human connection to it. Mm. I love the idea of scientifically mystical ways. It's so lovely as an idea. (laughs) Yeah. And then finally, what question, if you could put a question to to everyone listening to this, what question would you want them to sit with at the moment? How serious are you about wanting to be part of a solution? And, and what, what kinds of actions are you willing to take? And, you know, are, are you willing to have new conversations with people? Are you willing to change your lifestyle? You know, how, how serious, just how serious are you? Because the reality is that it's no longer the case that we can talk about climate change as sort of our children's problem or grandchildren's problem. It's definitely a problem that we have today. And I think everyone needs to be asking themselves just how serious they are about it. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.